Section 6 of Gentle Measures in the Management and Training of the Young This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Gentle Measures in the Management and Training of the Young by Jacob Abbott Section 6 The Philosophy of Punishment Part 1 it is very desirable that every parent and teacher should have a distinct and clear conception of the true nature of punishment and of the precise manner in which it is designed to act in repressing offences. This is necessary in order that the punitive measures which he may employ may accomplish the desired good and avoid the evils which so often follow in their train. Nature and Design of Punishment the first question which is to be considered in determining upon the principles to be adopted and the course to be pursued with children in respect to punishment is which of the two views in respect to the nature and design of punishment which prevails in the minds of men we will adopt in shaping our system. 1. Punishment may be considered in the light of a vindictive retribution for sin a penalty demanded by the eternal principles of justice as the natural and proper sequel and complement of the past act of transgression with or without regard to any salutary effects that may result from it in respect to future acts or two it may be considered as a remedial measure adopted solely with reference to its influence as a means of deterring the subject of it or others from transgression in time to come. According to the first view, punishment is a penalty which justice demands as a satisfaction for the past. According to the other, it is a remedy which goodness devises for the benefit of the future. Theologians have lost themselves in endless speculations on the question how far, in the government of God, punishment is to be considered as possessing one or the other of these two characters, or both combined. There seems to be also some uncertainty in the minds of men in relation to the precise light in which the penalties of violated law are to be regarded by civil governments and the spirit in which they are to be administered they being apparently as prescribed and employed by most governments in some respects and to some extent retributive and vindictive and in other respects remedial and curative it would seem however that in respect to school and family government there could be no question on this point the punishment of a child by a parent or of a pupil by a teacher ought certainly, one would think, to exclude the element of vindictive retribution altogether and to be employed solely with reference to the salutary influences that may be expected from in time to come. If the injunction, vengeance is mine, I will repay it, saith the Lord, is to be recognised at all, it certainly ought to be acknowledged here. The principle, once fully and cordially admitted, simplifies the subject of punishment, as administered by parents and teachers very much. One extremely important and very striking result of it will appear from a moment's reflection. It is this, namely, 
it excludes completely and effectually all manifestations of irritation or excitement in the infliction of punishment all harsh tones of voice all scowling or angry looks all violent or threatening gesticulations and every other mode in fact of expressing indignation or passion such indications as these are wholly out of place in punishment considered as the application of a remedy devised beneficently with the sole view of accomplishing a future good they comport only with punishment considered as vengeance or a vindictive retribution for the past sin this idea is fundamental the mother who is made angry by the misconduct of her children and punishes them in a passion acts under the influence of a brute instinct her family government is in principle the same as that of the lower animals over their young it is however at any rate a government and such a government is certainly better than none but human parents in the training of their human offspring ought surely to aim at something higher and nobler they who do so who possess themselves fully with the idea that punishment as they are to administer it is wholly remedial in its character that is to say is to be considered solely with reference to the future good to be attained by it will have established in their minds a principle that will surely guide them into right ways and bring them out successfully in the end they will soon acquire the habit of never threatening or never punishing in anger and of calmly considering in the case of the faults which they observe in their children what course of procedure will be more effectual in correcting them parents seem sometimes to have an idea that a manifestation of something like anger or at least very serious displeasure on their part is necessary in order to make a proper impression in respect to its fault on the mind of the child this however i think is a mistake the impression is made by what we do and not by the indications or irritation of displeasure which we manifest in doing it to illustrate this i will state a case narrating all its essential points just as it occurred this case is very analogous in many particulars to that of egbert and george related in the last chapter mary's walk mary said mary's aunt jane who had come to make a visit at mary's mother's in the country i am going to the village this afternoon and if you would like you may go with me mary was of course much pleased with this invitation a part of the way continued her aunt is by a path across the fields while we are there you must keep to the path all the time for it rained this morning and i am afraid that the grass may not be quite dry yes aunt jane i'll keep to the path said mary so they set out on the walk together when they came to the gate which led to the path across the fields, Aunt Jane said, Remember, Mary, you must keep to the path. Mary said nothing but ran forward. Pretty soon she began to walk a little on the margin of the grass, and before long, observing a place where the grass was short and where the sun shone, she ran out boldly upon it, and then, looking down at her shoes, she observed that they were not wet. She held up one of her feet to her aunt, as she came opposite the place, saying, See, aunt, the grass is not wet at all. I see it is not, said her aunt. I thought it might not be wet, though I was not sure but that it might be. 
But come, she added, holding out her hand. I have concluded not to go to the village after all. We are going back home. Oh, Aunt Jane, said Mary, following her aunt, as she began retracting her steps along the path. What is that for? I have altered my mind, said her aunt. What makes you alter your mind? By this time Aunt Jane had taken hold of Mary's hand, and they were walking together along a path towards home. "'Because you don't obey me,' she said. "'Why, Auntie?' said Mary. "'The grass was not wet at all where I went.' "'No,' said her aunt. "'It was perfectly dry. "'And it did not do any harm at all for me to walk upon it,' said Mary. "'Not a bit of harm,' said her aunt. "'Then why are you going home?' asked Mary. "'Because you don't obey me.' replied her aunt. "'You see,' said her aunt, "'there is one thing about this that you don't understand, because you are such a little girl. You will understand it by and by when you grow older, and I don't blame you for not knowing it now because you are so young.' "'What is it that I don't know?' asked Mary. "'I'm afraid you would not understand it very well if I were to explain it,' replied her aunt. "'Try me,' said Mary.' "'Well, you see,' replied her aunt, "'I don't feel safe with any child that does not obey me. "'This time no harm was done because the grass happened to be dry. "'But farther on there was a brook. "'I might have told you not to go near the brink of the brook "'for fear of you falling in. "'Then you might have gone, notwithstanding, "'if you thought there was no danger. "'Just as you went out upon the grass because you thought it was not wet, notwithstanding my saying that you must keep in the path. So you see, I never feel safe in taking walks in places where there is any danger with children that I cannot always depend upon to do exactly what I say. Mary was, of course, now ready to make profuse promises that she would obey her aunt in the future on all occasions and began to beg that she would continue her walk to the village. No, said her aunt, I don't think it would be quite safe for me to trust your promises, though I have no doubt you honestly mean to keep them. But you remember you promised me that you would keep in the path when we planned this walk, and yet when the time of temptation came you could not keep the promise, but you will learn. When I am going on some perfectly safe walk, I will take you with me again and if I stay here some time you will learn to obey me so perfectly and I could take you with me to any place, no matter how dangerous it may be. Aunt Jane thus gently but firmly persisted in abandoning the walk to the village and returning home, but she immediately turned the conversation away from the subject of Mary's fault and amused her with stories and aided her in gathering flowers, just as if nothing had happened and when she arrived at home she said nothing to any one of Mary's disobedience. Here now was punishment calculated to make a very strong impression, but still without scolding, without anger, almost in fact without any manifestations of displeasure. And yet how long can any reasonable person suppose it would be before Mary would learn, if her aunt acted invariably on the same principles, to submit implicitly to her will? A DIFFERENT MANAGEMENT Compare the probable result of this mode of management with the scolding and threatening policy. Suppose Aunt Jane had called to Mary angrily. Mary! Mary! Come directly back into the path. 
I told you not to go out of the path, and you are a very naughty child to disobey me. The next time you disobey me in that way, I will send you directly home. Mary would have been vexed and irritated, perhaps, and would have said to herself, How cross Aunt Jane is today! But the next time she would have been as disobedient as ever. If mothers, instead of scowling, scolding, and threatening now, and putting off doing the thing that ought to be done to the next time, would do that thing at once, and give up the scowling, scolding, and threatening altogether, they would find all parties immensely benefited by the change. It is evident, moreover, that by this mode of management, the punishment is employed not in the way of retribution, but as a remedy. Mary loses her walk not on the ground that she deserved to lose it, but because it was not safe to continue it. An Objection Some mothers may perhaps say, in reference to the case of Mary and her aunt, that it may be all very well in theory, but that practically mothers have not the leisure and the means for adopting such moderate measures. We cannot stop, she may say, every time we are going to the village, on important business perhaps, and turn back and lose the afternoon on account of the waywardness of a disobedient child. My answer is that it will not have to be done every time, but only very seldom. The effect of acting once or twice on this principle, with the certainty on the part of the child that the mother or the aunt will always act so when the occasion calls for it, very soon puts an end to all necessity for such action. Indeed, if Mary, in the insistence above given, had been managed in this way from infancy, she would not have thought of leaving the path when forbidden to do so. It is only in some such case as that of an aunt who knows how to manage right, coming as a visitor into the family of a mother who manages wrong, that such an incident as this could occur. Still, it must be admitted that the gentle methods of discipline, which reason and common sense indicate as the true ones for permanently influencing the minds of children and forming their characters, do, in each individual case, require more time and care than cuffs and slaps dictated by passion. A box on the ear, such as a cat gives to a rebellious kitten, is certainly the quickest application that can be made. The measures that are calculated to reach and affect the heart cannot vie with blows and scoldings in respect to the promptness of their action. Still, the parent or the teacher who will begin to act on the principles here recommended with children while they are young will find that such methods are far more prompt in their action and more effectual in immediate results than they would suppose and that they will be the means of establishing the only kind of authority that is really worthy of the name more rapidly than any other. The special point, however, with a view to which these illustrations are introduced, as has been already remarked, that penalties of this nature, and imposed in this spirit, are not vindictive, but simply remedial and reformatory. They are not intended to satisfy the sense of justice for what is past, but only to secure greater safety and happiness in time to come. The element of invariableness. Punishments may be very light and gentle in their character, provided they are certain to follow the offence. It is in their certainty and not in their severity that the efficiency lies. Very few children are ever severely burnt by putting their fingers into the flame of a candle. 
they are effectually taught not to put them in by very slight burnings on account of the absolute invariableness of the result produced by the contact. Mothers often do not understand this. They attempt to cure some habitual fault by scoldings and threats and declarations of what they will certainly do next time and perhaps by occasional acts of real severity in cases of peculiar aggravation instead of a quiet, gentle and comparatively trifling infliction in every instance of the fault which would be altogether more effectual. A child, for example, has acquired the habit of leaving the door open. Now occasionally scolding him when it is specially cold, and now and then shutting him up in a closet for half an hour, will never cure him of the fault. But if there was an automaton figure standing by the side of the door, to say to him every time that he came through without shutting it, Door! Which call should be a signal to him to go back and shut the door, and then sit down in the chair near by and count to ten, and if this slight penalty was invariably enforced, he would be most effectually cured of the fault in a very short time. Now the mother cannot be exactly this automaton, for she cannot always be there, but she can recognise the principle and carry it into effect as far as possible, that is invariably when she is there and though she will not thus cure the boy of the fault so soon as the automaton would do it, she will still do it very soon. Irritation and Anger Avoid as much as possible everything of an irritating character in the punishments inflicted, for to irritate frequently the mind of a child tends, of course, to form within him an irritable and unamiable temper. It is true, perhaps, that it is not possible absolutely to avoid this effect of punishment in all cases, but a great deal may be done to diminish the evil by the exercise of a little tact and ingenuity on the part of the mother whose attention is once particularly directed to the subject. The first and most important measure of precaution on this point is the absolute exclusion of everything like angry looks and words of accompaniments of punishment. If you find that any wrong which your child commits awakens irritation or anger in your mind, suspend your judgment of the case and postpone all action until the irritation and anger have subsided, and you can consider calmly and deliberately what to do, with a view not of satisfying your own resentment, but of doing good to the child. Then, when you have decided what to do, carry your decision into effect in a good-natured manner, firmly and inflexibly but still without any violence or even harshness of manner. End of section 6